there's this great scene in the 2003 movie entitled Luther, a movie that tells the story of Martin Luther and how his actions sparked the flames of the Protestant Reformation. And in this particular scene, he is brought before a prominent leader in the Catholic Church, an archbishop, where Luther is only supposed to say one thing, I recant. Of course, Martin Luther has to say a little bit more than that. And so he begins by simply asking, from what shall I recant? Which then leads to this lively dialogue between a lowly monk and a powerful church cleric, where at one point during this exchange, Luther passionately suggests, if only common people could read the Bible for themselves. But before he could finish his thought, the bishop interrupts him in a rage. That is outrageous, he yells. The scriptures are too complex for even the average priest to understand, much less the common man. Can you imagine what would happen, the the chaos that would ensue? Well, 500 years later, and I can't help but to agree. Look at the chaos that ensued. Look at how the Bible has been used by Christians to divide, to denounce, and discriminate. Look at how people take from the Bible this phrase or, or that story and then wreak all sorts of havoc. Look at how the Bible is so often used to abuse others. Now, don't get me wrong. I certainly don't want to go back to the days when the Bible is locked away from the masses, revealed only for the elite and the scholar. I am a most grateful product of growing up in a world where common people like myself have access to the scriptures in their own language and even in multiple translations, multiple versions. Praise the Lord for that. But we have to admit it has come with a price. So much harm has been done by people wielding this or that verse, confident that the Bible means what it says, and that's that. Unaware of the complexities of historical and literary context. Ignoring tradition and the history of interpretation. Like a toddler being given a steak knife, a tool that is meant for good, uh, we grab it with glee and start slashing it around, injuring ourselves and others in the process. Here's the point. With the Holy Scriptures, we have been given a great gift. But it is a gift that requires great care, great caution, and great humility. This gift is meant to bring life, yes, but without the proper attitude, without taking a humble and loving posture when we approach the text, Abuse is often the result. Let's see how this plays out in our gospel reading for today. A passage not only fraught with interpretive challenges, but a story that itself illustrates how prone we are to use the scriptures for our own agenda, regardless of the collateral damage that might result. First, you will notice that our reading from Mark 10... It doesn't include verse 1. Did you see that? Let me just jump straight in with verse 2. With the Pharisees questioning Jesus about divorce. What happened to verse 1? Well, perhaps for those who put together our lectionary, it seemed too boring to mention. 
Uh, Listen to what it says. Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. There you go. You see, who needs these geographical details? Let's just get right to the action. Let's start with verse 2. But again, such an attitude will get us into all sorts of trouble when dealing with passages like this one. Sayings of Jesus that touch a nerve, that speak to a subject charged with such emotion, a subject like divorce and remarriage. Because without a proper sensitivity to its context, without paying close attention to what is actually going on between Jesus and his accusers, this passage becomes a classic example of one that is used as a rod to beat people over the head with. So let's be careful and at least begin by taking a closer look at verse 1 at how Mark sets the scene for this interaction. He tells us that Jesus travels to Judea and crosses over the Jordan. Now, if you've been following Mark's account so far, you would know that the last time Jesus was in this area was at his baptism, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, way back in chapter 1. You see, the area of Judea around the Jordan was John's area of ministry, a ministry you'll remember that comes to a dramatic end. Back in chapter 6 of Mark, we learn that he is thrown into prison, and then he is later beheaded. But do you recall why? He was beheaded because he had criticized King Herod for marrying his brother's wife, a marriage that had required a divorce to pave the way. You see, it was this issue of divorce and remarriage that John spoke to in order to renounce Herod's claim to the throne. Ah, well, As you see, knowing this little detail sheds quite a bit of light on our story, doesn't it? I mean, this isn't just some friendly theological banter on the legal particulars of divorce that the Pharisees are wanting to have. No, this is an attempt by the Pharisees to do to Jesus what was done to John the Baptist, to trap him, arrest him, and have him killed. Which means that we shouldn't expect to find in this passage a comprehensive treatment on marriage and divorce or instructions for offering pastoral care to a divorced person or maybe to someone who is struggling with their marriage. None none of that is going on in this passage. No, Jesus is directing his response to hostile opponents who are bent on trapping him. And so with this in mind, we are now prepared to continue on to verse 2 when the Pharisees lay their trap. They ask him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the Pharisees already know Jesus' position here, which, of course, if spoken aloud, will put him in hot water, right in the crosshairs of Herod's paranoia. So, in typical rabbinic fashion... Jesus responds to their question with a counter-question, putting the ball back in their court, saying, what did Moses command you? Notice how he reframes the issue here, as if to say, let's not talk about hypotheticals, about some unspecified husband. Let's talk about you. What did Moses command you? 
course, Jesus knows as well as they do that Moses didn't command or even encourage divorce nowhere. The only mention of divorce in all the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, is in Deuteronomy, where restrictions are placed on the husband should he decide to divorce, restrictions that Moses put in place to protect the vulnerable, in this case, to protect the woman. You see, the purpose of the bill of divorce was not to authorize divorce, but to limit its consequences so that the abandoned wife wouldn't end up destitute. But it's the only thing the Pharisees can point to because it's the only thing in the books of Moses that mentions divorce. So that's what they say. They say Moses does give us permission to write a bill of divorce. Well, yes, he does, Jesus replies, but only as a compromise to protect wives from your hardness of heart, from your stubborn unwillingness to obey God. It's now that Jesus' line of reasoning comes into focus. If this exception in the Mosaic law has its roots in men's hardness of heart, then it cannot reflect God's will for marriage. The Pharisees need to discover what God intends, not what Moses permits. And to discover that, to discover God's intentions, they must go back to the beginning, to our Old Testament reading for today from Genesis 2, which is exactly what Jesus does. This is God's intentions, Jesus says. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It is God who is Lord over the marriage union, not the husband. And since God abandons no one, the husband is not to abandon his wife, even if there is legal precedent. The implicit answer, then, that Jesus gives to the Pharisees' original question is no. It is not lawful for a husband to divorce his wife, so long as you understand lawful in terms of God's will, instead of finding an escape clause in the fine print, as the Pharisees are keen on doing. You see what's going on here, the Pharisees, they're they're treating marriage like our culture does, like it's a contract that one party can cancel whenever, you know, the romance fades, or whenever my needs are no longer being met. Or whenever someone more compatible comes along. But Jesus reminds us of God's ultimate design for marriage. It is not a breakable contract. It is a binding covenant. More than that, actually, marriage is a a new entity, a new human being, one flesh. This is the backdrop, then, for understanding the even harder saying Jesus gives his disciples when they pull him aside and they're alone with him. When they ask a follow-up question. And here Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Yes, a tough saying, but again, based on the context, this is not meant to accuse someone of adultery. It's meant to argue for the permanence, the, the sacredness of the marital bond. We must keep in mind that the point of this passage is not to explore legitimate and biblical grounds for divorce. 
That's what the Pharisees pretend to want to talk about. But Jesus reframed that entire debate. Why? Because he knows his audience. Because Jesus always knows his audience. What would happen, let's suppose, if his audience was different? Perhaps someone who, unlike the Pharisees, is actually striving to be obedient to God, but is caught in a terrible situation. For example, someone abandoned by their husband, or suffering from physical or emotional abuse, or someone whose spouse is having an affair. How would Jesus respond then? I believe we can piece together what Jesus might say by looking beyond this one isolated incident that is not dealing with legitimate and biblical grounds for divorce. Because in the New Testament, we find that permission for divorce is granted under certain circumstances, like adultery or abandonment. And if we had time, we could certainly, we could, we could see this by turning to Matthew's version of this account or turning to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Passages like these suggest that while it's never the ideal, we live in a fallen world. And there are times when a person, after exhausting every possible route, does have biblical grounds for divorce, the lesser of two evils. And I would also want to, us to look at how Jesus responds to women who are in desperate situations. I think about the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus' approach to her is much different than how he approaches the Pharisees. I mean, of course, Jesus never excuses her sin, but he is ready to forgive and restore and bring healing into her life. And I think about how Jesus constantly stands up for women in a day when they were viewed as not much more than property. I mean, there's no question that if a battered and abused wife came to Jesus for help, that yes, he would do everything he could to restore the marriage, but he would also look to protect her well-being. We have to remember that even in our passage today, a passage that initially sounds harsh to our ears, Jesus is actually looking out for the vulnerable here, the discarded wife and her children. He's standing up for women in the face of those whose only concern is taking advantage of a legal loophole for divorce, right? Now, <clears throat> I say all of this a bit forcefully because I've seen the statistics. Did you know that women who regularly attend church are 85% more likely to remain in an abusive marriage than those who don't attend because they wrongly think that's what it means to be faithful to Jesus, to take the abuse. That is a tragedy, a tragedy. That's how Scripture can be used in an abusive fashion. You've got to remember, we, we must be careful with how we read and interpret Scripture so as not to abuse others. Things are not always as cut and dry as we think they are. They're complicated. They're nuanced. There's always more going on than what's on the surface of the text. I know this sounds crazy at first, but listen, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. That's a big difference. And it requires a lot of careful work to arrive at its meaning. And by the way, even when you get there, you still have to work through the question of modern day application. Another complex process that's not near as easy as we tend to think. We must exercise 
extreme caution in how we read and interpret Scripture. So then when it comes to the issue of marriage, on the one hand, we must proclaim God's intention that marriage is a permanent covenant relationship, not a temporary romantic agreement that can be terminated whenever it suits our fancy. And we must proclaim this truth not by standing on our soapboxes and denouncing divorce. That's not how we do it. But by nurturing strong and healthy marriages ourselves. Right? That's how we proclaim that. But then on the other hand, we must be pastorally sensitive to spouses who suffer from abuse and abandonment and adultery. And we must be careful that our commitment to the covenant of marriage doesn't prevent victims from getting the help that they so desperately need, especially from the church. Sometimes a very hard place to get help whenever they're going through things like this. It is a hard line for the church to walk, but I believe it's the line that Jesus walked. And as the body of Christ today, we must do a better job. We must do better not only to uphold, protect, and fight for the sacred gift that is marriage, but also to uphold and protect and fight for those who suffer abuse. Yes, a hard line to walk, but we must all learn to walk it, all of us. For we all have a part to play here, whether married or not, by what we say, by how we treat one another, by how we support the abused, how we strengthen our own marriages, and especially by how we use this wonderful and dangerous gift of the scriptures. Please, please let us be careful with this gift. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that we live in a time and in a world where we have access to your holy scriptures. And in our case, in multiple versions with multiple tools, so many gifts are among us when it comes to the Bible. But Lord, we confess that uh, we so often don't approach the scriptures with caution, with nuance, with humility, with uh, a listening posture. Would you help all of us at this church and in this room to take more caution in how we read and interpret and apply scripture so that we not, might not be a people that uh, abuse others. In fact, that we might be a people that invites those who suffer from abuse to come and find healing and restoration and guidance and counsel. May we be that kind of church, we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.